Sunday. Some of you just cheered and you have no clue what that means. Any, can anybody confess? Yeah, Jamie. Um, Palm Sunday was this amazing moment in the story of Jesus, right? It marked his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as king. And so for us this week, it marks the beginning of Holy Week, right? We know next Sunday's Easter, it marks the resurrection of Christ and Friday, Good Friday marks the day that he was killed. But this is Palm Sunday. And this points us right back in scripture to this fulfillment of prophecy where Jesus tells his disciples to go get a donkey. He says, don't worry, the, the, the owner's gonna let you have it, but just go ask for it, say the king needs it. And they go get the donkey and the donkey comes back, not by itself, of course, with, <laughs> this isn't Shrek. The donkey comes back with the disciples. The disciples take their cloaks off and lay it on the donkey and Jesus goes on the donkey and he rides into Jerusalem. And all these people, the disciples and all the fans of Jesus at this time, they get out these palm leaves. They start celebrating this king, this humble, meek king who comes in on a donkey. And they say, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us. This is Palm Sunday. Welcome. <laughs> it's a beautiful moment in Israel's history. It's a beautiful moment in our history where Jesus comes into the city of God, Jerusalem, as king. This is a significant, I love you, man, but you're good. Thanks, man. We only prayed a ton. <laughs> Best day of Sam's life, I release him. This is a, this is a, a very big moment in, in Israel's history because this moment where Jesus comes in riding on a donkey was prophesied, spoken about, about 500 years before. There's a man named Zechariah who wrote about this Messiah who would come and save Israel from their oppression, save Israel from the threats of the world around them, that this king would come and overthrow any opposition that was standing in the way from the people of God being blessed. And so here Jesus was, the fulfillment of this 500-year-old prophecy in Zechariah. Now, it's important to understand in this that Jesus wasn't just riding on a donkey. He wasn't just being celebrated by people. He was riding in, on a donkey into a city. It was significant that it was into a city because this city, it says, was a dwelling for God's name, that God designated this city and the temple in it for his presence among his people. Do you mind if you... Take the lights down. First, I see too many faces and it's distracting me. <laughs> I'm only used to seeing like 15 people in the front row. So he rides in on this donkey into the city of Jerusalem. What's interesting though about the prophecy that Zechariah gave 500 years before Jesus was that the city itself, the dwelling of God's name was lying in ruins. It was destroyed. The walls were torn down. And then here's this man, Zechariah, speaking about this city that's in ruins, saying, in the near future, the king is coming. 
He's going to ride on a donkey and people are going to celebrate him. And so we have this place of devastation, but the word of God, the prophecy of God speaking right into that space. One day, Zechariah was saying, the true king is coming. And he's coming to this city, this fantastic place that's the center of Israel. But can you imagine what was in Zechariah's mind as he was prophesying? Think with me for a second. The king is coming to release his people from oppression and seat them in the position of blessing in this world and everything around them is going to be blessed. But this is what he's coming to? He wasn't looking at a beautiful city like ours that was in prosperity. He was looking to a city that was overthrown and burnt to the ground. What was supposed to be this beautiful picture of prosperity and blessing and God's presence was devastated. And Zechariah is looking at this devastation, walls to the ground, infrastructure, temple overthrown. He's looking at it and saying, one day the king is coming and he's coming to this. So that one day it comes, Jesus shows up. And he shows up on this donkey and fulfills the prophecy. But he doesn't come to a devastated city, does he? He comes to a city with economy. He comes to a city that's flourishing. They're under the occupation of Rome, but the temple is there. It exists. So this moment where Zechariah is saying 500 years before Jesus is coming, it sparked something in them. It sparked something in the nation to say, this can't be this way because the king is coming. This is not what he wants to come to. And so there was something in them that said, we must rebuild and restore for the coming of the king. And this movement starts to pick up 500 years before Jesus. The people of God were in exile in Babylon and people like Zechariah would say, Jesus is coming. Well, you didn't know his name. The king, the Messiah is coming. And then we have people like Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther who said, okay, if he's coming, we got to start rebuilding and restoring what lies in ruin. I want to give you a little bit of history here. I want you to see the beauty of the story of God. So then Jesus shows up. He rides on a donkey. Everybody's saying, Hosanna, the king is here. And then Jesus starts talking about the destruction of the temple. Zechariah is prophesying about this town that's destroyed. All of this urgency comes over the people of God to rebuild it and to restore the temple because the king is coming. And now the king has come. And Jesus starts talking about the destruction of the city and the destruction of the temple. He says, no stone of this temple will remain unturned. He says some crazy things like destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Could you imagine how confusing this would have been to the people of God? God, I thought Jerusalem, I thought the temple was like what you wanted and what you were coming to reign in. And he's saying, hey, destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. 
This must have made the religious people really angry. We thought you were coming in to do what we wanted you to do, yet you're coming in to say that, no, 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 it's going to be overthrown and destroyed. And you can get hints to now why Jesus was killed. Because all these years of history of them thinking that it should be this way, their whole economy, their whole culture was in preparation for this Messiah, and he comes differently than they thought. Palm Sunday. So in this, we know that Jesus was saying, the temple is no longer this building. Saying, I am the temple. I am the dwelling of God. I am God dwelling among you, Jesus. So when he's talking about the destruction of the temple, he was talking about the building, but he was also talking about his death that was about to come. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. He's speaking about something that they don't really know until it happens. And they're like, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. He was saying that the presence of God isn't going to be confound to a city or a building anymore. He's saying, I am God walking among you. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again. And then Jesus goes on to say that we are his body. We are the temple. We are the body of Christ. We are that temple he was talking about, the dwelling of God. And by the way, he's coming again. I'm so glad you said amen. And so if 500 years before Jesus, there was this urgency to welcome Jesus into a place that was built and restored and hosted his presence, we should still then have the same urgency to be presented to Jesus as a spotless bride without wrinkle and blemish. Palm Sunday isn't just about looking back to say how he came in. It's about looking back to get a glimpse of how he's coming again. It's a preparation for the future. I'm just giving you an intro, okay? We're going to get somewhere very practical today. So let's go back. Prophets like Zechariah and Haggai, they were concerned about the state of the city and the temple within it. And people like Ezra, you can read about this in your Bible, they came to rebuild the temple and restore the city. And the reason why it was in ruins was because they hadn't been following God's way. They hadn't been following God's law. Has anybody come to the conclusion in your life that there's a sense of ruin in your life because you haven't been walking your life out with God? That's why most of us are in this room right now because we've come to that conclusion that my life looks like ruins when I'm not doing it his way. This is why the city was devastated. This is why the temple was torn down because God said through Moses, follow these laws and you will flourish. It was pretty simple. Follow these laws and these rules and you will walk in blessing. But on the flip side, he said, abandon them and you will be scattered amongst your enemies and you will be slaves. So the devastation of the temple, the devastation of the city was actually prophecy fulfilled. Moses knew that his people weren't going to follow the law. And so what we're seeing here is a civilization of people who simply put didn't follow the law of God. Can we break it down that simply? That's all there was to it. God said to them, if you walk in the law, your life will be in blessing. If you abandon my law, your life will not be in blessing. In fact, it will be in curse. 
But here's the underlying motive of God, and we've been harping on this for weeks. God wanted to bless his people. It was his entire motive of calling them to himself. You will be my people known by my, my name. He wanted to bless them. He didn't want it in devastation. But he said his blessing came through the law. Like it's pretty simple connection that God is making. Right? And this law came when he took them out of Egypt. He took this people out of Egypt, but he also had to take Egypt out of them. You're used to slavery. You're used to this mindset. You're used to oppression. I can't have you thinking that way and acting that way when I want you to walk in blessing. So I'm going to deconstruct these ways of thinking by giving you a new way of thinking, saying walk in this, and you're not going to be slaves anymore. You're going to walk in blessing. He gave them a brand new way to walk. He said, follow these rules and you will walk in blessing and favor with God. What he was doing through the law, and I need you to hear this today. What he was doing through the law in these rules was building a culture of blessing. Can you say culture? God was building a culture of blessing. The laws he gave them were not the end. They were means to an end. It wasn't about the law. It was about the culture of blessing that he wanted to give them. Remember his covenant. I want to bless you and the nation that comes through you, Abraham, so abundantly that the world through them will be blessed. He wants to bless his people. But here's what laws do. They help shape culture. So if God was building a culture of blessing, he gave them laws and rules and ways to follow so that that culture could be shaped. Hear me today. This is what God is still after, a culture of blessing. That if we could describe what we walk in in relationship with Jesus one way, it would be a culture of blessing. Remember Acts 3, Jesus came to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. That's his motive. He wants you to be blessed. He wants us to be blessed. He wants our interactions to be blessed. He wants your creativity blessed. He wants your leadership blessed. A culture of blessing. But he said, again, if they abandon the law, they wouldn't live in a culture of blessing. They would live in a culture of oppression, of burden, of curse. Moses put it this way, choose this day which way you're going to go, blessing or curse, life or death. And here's the reality, there was no middle ground. He made it very clear that it's the law or nothing. You mix a little bit of that with a little bit of this, it's going to be your pathway out of blessing. Made it very clear how important the law was. So we know this story, the ebb and flow, right, of Israel's adherence to the law and then the abandonment of the law over and over and over and over again. And in the mix of all of this indecision and rebellion and flip-flopping, we have God putting before them always a call that if they humbled themselves and repented, God would hear them and restore them to blessing. This is the heart of our God. If you want blessing, walk this way. But even if you find yourself 
Walking out of blessing, there's always a way back to blessing. This is the goodness and graciousness of our God. No matter how you find yourself, there's always a way back. What does it say in 2 Chronicles? We know this one. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, there it is, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so we see this over and over and over again. God says to them, I want to bless you so abundantly. That's amazing, God. Thank you. Here's how to do it. Walk in the law. Something looks shinier over there. Their fear starts to get in them. They start to retreat from the law. Little bit that's convenient. They'll keep with them. Their identity is fine, but they're going to adopt this culture and this law. And God says, okay, that's your pathway to curse. He says, okay, but if you're going to walk that way, there's always a way back. And you see this cycle over and over and over and over again. And this is what God says. This isn't working. You ever felt that way in life before? This isn't working. God said it first. You trying to figure out how to be a good person to walk in blessing is not going to work. You trying to figure out how to like have the blessing of God yet find your own way to it, it's not going to work. Jesus says this law isn't working. For you to walk in the fullness of blessing that I want. But remember, the law wasn't the end. It was the means to the end. The end was blessing. Through the prophets, we hear God saying, soon the law wouldn't be written on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. And this is what Jesus came to do. He was the fulfillment of the law. Well, we're going to get somewhere special today. Just stay with me. Jesus came and fulfilled the law. God was saying, this isn't working. You're not able to do this, but I know one who can, my son. He's going to go do it for you. He's going to fulfill the law, every iota of it. So I'm not abandoning this culture of blessing anymore. I'm just helping you obtain it outside of yourself. So all you have to do is find life in him. Follow his way and you will walk in the blessing that I wanted from the beginning. So our relationship with the law has changed. It's no longer a relationship with the 613 laws that are in the Old Testament that they had to keep. Our relationship is in one person. It's Jesus who fulfilled the law for us. Amen. Jesus came to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. Okay. Got it. So we have this city, Jerusalem, and the temple within it. And Jerusalem was the center of culture for God's people. Can you say culture one more time? Jerusalem was the center of culture for God's people. And the center of that culture was the temple. The center of the culture of God's people was the presence of God. This is how it worked. It was a theocracy. God was king. And all culture flowed from the king. This is how they set it up. This is why there was urgency to set up the temple again because his presence was paramount. And here they were, both of those things, the temple and the city lying in ruins. 
And Ezra and other people come to rebuild. They say to this end, this is not okay. We need to reestablish this cultural center again so we can walk in blessing. What they're saying is here are God's blessed people that are not walking in blessing. What good is blessing in theory? Anybody wake up and say, I'm blessed? Blessed life? And you take two steps and you're like, where's that blessed life? Right? We're, we're blessing as a label, but not as a reality. This is what they're saying about the people of God. Yeah, they're the blessed chosen ones, but they're scattered amongst the world, slaves to other people. What good is blessing in theory when we're not actually walking it out? And some people need a cold glass of water to the face and you keep on saying, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. Your life doesn't look like blessing. When God says, I don't want you to just label yourself as blessed, I want you to be blessed. And if you're not walking in that promise, there's more for you. Let's figure out what that looks like. Here are God's people, chosen, called, purposed, blessed, not walking in blessing. We got to get them back to how God prescribed us to walk so we can be in blessing. Do you get the motive here? We got to go rebuild this cultural center so that our culture is one of blessing. Thank you. You're with me. It's like playing piano, right? You could, you could know all the notes on a page and study and study and study and study, but that's not what it's about. It's about hearing the sound of the notes on those page. So you could have this inherent DNA to walk in blessing, but until you actually walk in it, you don't get to hear the sound of it. All you know it is on paper. I have the law all in front of me, and if, if I would just walk that out, I have the theory right in front of me. That theory needs practice. That theory needs to be walked out. It's not a blessing unless you walk in it. So Ezra goes back, and he starts rebuilding the city, and they have public readings of the law again. Right? Like... Drake comes into town, goes to Rogers Arena, and he's like, do it for the culture. And we start revolving around different things in the midst of our, you guys are all making fun of me. I practiced that one, just kidding, I didn't practice that one. There's certain things that come in and we gather around them and it starts to inform our culture. What Ezra did, what Nehemiah did, they came in and brought the law out. They said, everybody come gather around. This is the culture. They said, enough with that, enough with this, and enough with mixture. We got to get God back at the center of again. And where we're going isn't huddled into our little homes. We're going to the center of society, the biggest, most influential city in our nation. We're going straight to the temple and saying, this is what matters. It wasn't because they were religious people. It's because they wanted to walk in blessing. You get the connection. There's another man around this time. His name was Nehemiah. 
The book of Nehemiah is this story about the rebuilding of the walls of the city. Nehemiah was also concerned about his city and his people. He wasn't living there, though. He was just getting reports of it. Remember, he was in exile. He was a cupbearer to the king of a different nation. But his focus went to a very specific part of the city. It wasn't about rebuilding the infrastructure. It wasn't about rebuilding the temple. It was about rebuilding the walls. And the gates, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, it says, So they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the provinces are in great trouble and disgrace. Listen, the wall, can you say the wall? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven about walls. Have you cared so much about anything in your life that you sat down and wept and fasted and prayed for this long? Anybody? I hope so. But this guy did it about walls. There was something in his mind about the importance of the walls of this city. So we're talking about culture here, right? And culture is determined by those who influence it. And God gave specific instructions for the people of God not to mix with other cultures. This is where we get in the scripture. God's saying that he's jealous. I'm jealous that you don't serve those gods. You serve me as the one true God. Because he says if you mix with other cultures, you'll end up serving their gods. He says, I'm a jealous God. You're to serve me and me only. But he wasn't saying it because he was insecure. He was saying it, why? Because he wanted his people to walk in blessing. Can everybody say blessing to make me happy, please? You get it. He wants his people to walk. He wants you to walk in blessing. God knew his culture would invite life. But the culture of the other gods, of the other nations, of the other peoples would invite death. He wanted blessing for his people. So the culture of God's people had to remain distinct from the world around it if they were to walk in blessing. God said, no mixture. It has to be this or nothing at all. So when Nehemiah heard about the state of God's people, he began became burdened to rebuild the walls. Walls weren't just to protect the infrastructure of the city, but to distinguish the culture from outside influence. Right? In a wall, you have a gate. And when you build a wall with a gate in it, you get to decide what comes in. You get to decide what makes it through. I'm excited, but I'm trying to pace myself. (laughs) Could you get me some water, please? Thank you. You guys okay? Yeah. Excuse me. I'll let this be awkward. 
Sammy could open this for me. <laughs> I can't do it. My fingers. So strong. Thank you. <laughs> the culture of God's people had to remain distinct from the world around it if they were to walk in blessing. So when he heard Nehemiah about the state of God's people, he became burdened to rebuild walls. So he was saying, as we're reestablishing culture, we also need to preserve and to protect it. And he fasts and he repents on behalf of his people and prays for God's favor. Right, because God chose that place as a dwelling for his name, the temple in the present. But one day he knew the Messiah would walk in. And you had these prophecies, these psalms, like Psalm 24. Lift up your head, O ye gates, so that the king of glory might come in. They knew that God was coming one day and they wanted to rebuild. But part of this rebuilding was the walls. So those gates one day might invite their savior in. He thought he was just reclaiming something from the past, but God was using him to prepare for what was coming next. So walls, they're necessary to protect and preserve culture, to make distinction between one culture and another. The culture of blessing and the culture of curse. Culture of life and the culture of death. Does anybody want some walls? But Nehemiah wasn't the only one fixated on walls. It says in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10, it says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, the rebuilding of the walls, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Nehemiah wasn't the only one obsessed with walls. So were Sanballat and Tobiah. They literally postured themselves, Nehemiah 4, Nehemiah 6, they postured themselves against the rebuilding of the wall. They tried to do everything possible to stop Nehemiah and the people from re rebuilding the wall. When God says to us that something matters, we need to take note, right? Amen. But when the enemy stands in opposition to something in, the, in your life, you also need to take note. Because when he becomes obsessed about something in your life, when Sanballat and Tobiah show up and do everything they can to stop you from building walls, you need to take note. Because the enemy is showing his cards. They knew the same thing Nehemiah did. If the walls went up, they would no longer be able to influence the culture of God's people like they once did. Stay with me. Lord, come and help us. Nehemiah 4 says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from heaps of rubble burned as they are? 
Tobiah the Ammonite, who was with his side, said, with him at his side, said, what are they doing? Even a fox climbing up on it will break down their wall of stones. They started intimidating. They started to speak against. They started to undermine. They said, even if you do build it, it's going to fall down. They were starting, they were trying to get under the skin of those who were rebuilding it. They were trying to get in their heads. If they're types and shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament, there are types and shadows of Satan also. Did you know Satan, the word Satan, Satan, means adversary or opposition? This is what he does. When God says, I want you blessed, Jeremy, what Satan does is he stands in opposition to what God wants in Jeremy's life. And so when Jeremy starts to say, I'm going to rebuild, the enemy comes and says, no, you're not. When Jeremy says, I want the culture of life, saying, cool, go for it but don't build any walls because you could try all you want to build this culture and I'm just gonna walk right in there and mess it up. The enemy is after the exact opposite of what God wants. Jesus says, John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to bring life and life in abundance. You know what Jesus was talking about in that context? Walls. He says, I have a, I have sheep, and I'm their shepherd, and my sheep are in a pen. Walls. The thief tries to get in there and steal and kill and destroy, but I am the shepherd. I've come that they might have life and life in abundance. And he says, I go through the gates. The thief tries to get in somewhere else. In fact, he says, I am the gates. They can't come in without me letting them in. My sheep know my voice, my culture, my life, my blessing, and another they will not follow. So Sanballat and Tobiah, they're satanic figures. They stand in opposition to the blessing of God. They're the the personification of Satan's influence in our lives. Okay, you can go ahead, Jeremy, and try to rebuild your life, but who do you think you are? And even if you try, something bad's going to come in the future and knock it down. He says even little foxes are going to come knock this wall down. It's how he works. He tries to get in your mind. And in the story of Nehemiah, the satanic spirit was uniquely obsessed with walls. This is a page right out of the enemy's playbook. Why does Satan care so much about walls? Satan knows that even in Jesus, he still has access and he can still influence. He knows this. Did you know this? We're going there today. Like, what is this? Palm Sunday. He did it to Jesus. When Jesus was in the wilderness, it says he was tempted and tested. And Satan tried to get him off track by influencing him. Jesus could not be influenced because he knew his father, but Satan tried nonetheless. And if he tried with Jesus, don't you think he's trying with you? He's still got a strategy. He's still going for it. He's not going to stop trying to influence you. 
Jesus' blood has cleansed you and saved you. Amen. It's forgiven you. He's forgiven you. And he was raised on the third day, overcoming death. We are saved if you're in Christ. But God wants more than your salvation. He came to bring life and life in abundance. He wants you to be blessed by developing in you, in us, a culture of blessing through Jesus. He wants more than your salvation. He wants you, where you're at right now, to thrive in blessing. But that culture of blessing has to be cultivated, it has to be protected, and it has to be preserved. This is why walls matter. Okay, back into the 21st century. Dr. Henry Cloud, you know this name? This famous author wrote a book called Boundaries. Sold two million copies. Anybody have one? Of course, two million copies. And in this book, he gave people language and tools to help navigate relationships with other people. So you can not just survive in life, but you can thrive in life. And he called this set of tools boundaries, or in Nehemiah's words, walls. And here's the summary of the book. By setting clear boundaries, we can protect ourselves from the negative influence of others and take control of our lives. Anybody read this book? And we get this from a relational standpoint, don't we? We need healthy boundaries in our lives. Some of you come to me and other leaders in this church and you don't want to serve or, or, or show up to things because you're like, I need healthy boundaries. <laughs> we get it, right? It's a very 21st century thing. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> My jokes aren't, aren't firing as, as hot today. We understand the concept of boundaries, right? We've learned this in our society. We set boundaries to have healthy lives. If someone's taking advantage of you in life, the smart thing to do is set up boundaries so that person can't take advantage of you anymore. We get it. Henry Cloud, he's talking about the same thing. Nehemiah and Sanballat and Tobiah, they were obsessed about boundaries, walls. If we're clear about our need to do this with people, why are we not clear about our need to do this with the enemy of our souls? Let me say that again. Everybody needs to zoom in right now. I don't know where you've been for the past 25 minutes, but I need you here now. If we're clear but our need for boundaries with people, why are we not clear about our need to do this with the enemy of our souls? We're so versed in, in this interpersonal relational boundary thing. We also need to do this with the one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And how much more? Boundaries are important because they act like preventative medicine, don't they? You don't have to deal with an issue if you can just keep it from getting in. The best way to treat an illness, what, is to prevent it. And we would all say yes. Thank you. We'd all say yes to this mindset, wouldn't we? Our healthcare system is set up to do just the opposite, by the way. 
Oh, that was a mighty reaction. I wasn't expecting that one. We're spending so much resource dealing with the problems that are already inside. And we don't have much to go towards preventing them from getting inside. God bless our medical system, though. Let's get a heart check right now. Thank you, God, for doctors and nurses in our medical system. But the point of the matter remains that there's so much resource that has to be given to dealing with the problems that already exist versus setting up resources to help us keep from getting those problems in the first place. And we're learning, right? We're learning slowly what this looks like through testing and research and all these things. But the mindset, prevailing mindset here is this. I'll deal with it when it becomes a problem. That mindset isn't just pervasive in our medical system. It's pervasive in our society. But even worse, it's pervasive in our spirituality. We're constantly dealing with things that have already gotten in. When God has given us the ability from, from keeping them from getting in. I want to tell you today that you're dealing with more inside than you ought to. As a follower of Jesus, one who Jesus came to bless, you're dealing with way more in your mind, in your heart, and in your life than you ought to. Anybody want some walls? It's like rebuilding the city and the temple and letting the walls lie in ruin. God, I want your culture. God, I want your culture. God, I want your culture. I want to walk in blessing. I want to walk in blessing. I want to walk in blessing. But there's no walls in your life to protect and preserve and to cultivate that blessing. Because there's free access to any and every influence. Walls matter. If you come to my house right now, we're at war. <laughs> Awkward pause. Not with my wife or my kids. We have mice. We got mice. And we're setting traps. We're putting the sticky things out. We're putting deadly devices everywhere. If my kids get a finger in there, they might lose one. We're putting poison out everywhere. We even called for backup. It's paid a lot of money so that someone who's a professional can come exterminate these mice. And they leave droppings everywhere. I'm not only dealing with mice, I'm dealing with the excrement that they leave lying over my house. I have a white couch, by the way. We're dealing with the problems on the inside. And if we kill them or get rid of them, that's great for now. But they're eventually coming back, aren't they? So what's the number one way to deal with these mice? And I'm preaching to myself here. And that's the conclusion of my message. Get a cat. <laughs> Thank you. Get a cat. Or more spiritually speaking, don't let them get in. 
find the gaps in the walls and close them because you can keep on dealing with the problem over and over and over again, but they're just going to keep on coming back. You can deal with things in your life. You can have a good day, have a good week, but unless you build up boundaries and walls, prevent that thing from coming in again, it's coming back. (laughs) Thanks, bro. Sanballat and Tobiah, it says clearly in scripture that they were upset because the gaps in the walls were being closed. You can rebuild the temple, you can rebuild the city all you want, but just leave it open because when you're not looking, I'm coming. They say, they put it this way, before they know it or see it, we will be amongst them. That mouse ain't knocking on the door saying, hey, can I come in for lunch? No, I don't notice the mouse until there's mouse droppings everywhere in my house. And I'm like, oh, there's a mouse here. This is what they were saying. Mice are from the devil. (laughs) (laughs) How many of us are going from problem to problem, issue to issue? We're trying to say yes to the culture of heaven, but things keep getting thrown off. I'm here to tell you today, check the walls. Before you think I'm stretching it, I want you to read with me Ephesians chapter 4. This is Paul. Verse 17, he says this, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. That's where we are now. We're in him, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. I have a different culture for you now in him. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity that they are full of, uh, and they are full of greed." He's talking about a different, separate culture that you have now been called out of in Christ. That, however, is not the way you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitudes of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What Paul is saying, you're not part of that cursed culture anymore. I'm not talking about out there. I'm talking about the life we once lived. You got this new culture now. Put that one off and put this one on so that you can walk in blessing. Paul is saying, make distinction between the cultures of the old and the new. Do not mix them. Don't let let any of the old live with the new. If any thoughts, ideas represent death, they're gone, they're old. Any anxieties, any fears rooted in identity that's outside Christ, you're now in him. He's saying, put that stuff away. Allow it no room in this culture, in the culture of your heart, because you have a new one now. Look at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we're all members of one body, and in your anger, do not sin. Do Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Scriptures say that the devil, Satan, is a deceiver. 
He's not coming knocking on your door with red horns, a pitchfork, and a tail saying, can we have lunch today? <laughs> it's not how he works. Sanballat said it the right way. Before they know it or see it, we will be amongst them. He's an expert at getting in without you even knowing it. That's why Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Such thing as righteous anger. But if you let that anger turn into bitterness, that anger turn into violence, let that anger turn into distance between you and the ones that God gave you, that is letting the devil in. This is not the culture that you live now. This is the old culture. What about the friends that you vent to? And you go to them and you talk about all the things that are going on in your life, about how this guy did this to you and this girl did this to you. And your friend sits back and says, yeah, honey, get him. You should feel this way. Like you deserve to be angry. Hold it against them. Don't talk about it. Don't talk to them for a while. Just like ignore them. And your friend is coming to you in what seems like love and affirmation, but all they're affirming is this open door for your life for the devil to get in and get a foothold. It's when Jesus says to his friend Peter, Satan, get behind me. He understood the good intention of his friend was in opposition to his mission in life. All Satan wanted to do was keep him from dying. And Jesus recognized that something was trying to get in. And he said, oh, I see you for who you are. Get behind me. And he says, anyone who is stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they might have something to share with those in need. Do not, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. He's not saying don't say the F word. Don't say the S word. Don't say other bad things. He's saying don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Levi. <laughs> He's not happy about that. But only what is helpful for the building others up according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Paul is saying this is how you protect and preserve the culture of the kingdom. And when you walk in this and cast out that, that is you walking in blessing. But the moment that you allow any of that to come in your life is the moment that you've allowed the influence of the one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy have his say in your life. In Ephesians 6, we're wrapping up. Sam, you can come. Ephesians 6, to take it home. Paul says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Jesus says, I am the gate. You don't have to batten down the hatches of your own life. This isn't about walking in obsessive religion. This is about saying, Jesus, I want your culture. Come write it on my heart. Come show me who you are that I might walk in your ways. That's why Paul says this general phrase, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? 
be in such close proximity to the Holy Spirit and His heart, His heart nature, His culture, that when anything comes in a way that doesn't look like and feel like and sense, like you sense the Holy Spirit, it's got to go. You're so uniquely connected to the heart of God that anything that comes in like oil and water, you can say that doesn't belong in this culture. That's what it looks like to build walls. He is so strong and so present and so beautiful in your soul that if anything compromises who he is in you, you say, no, I want this and not that. You got to go. And then Paul says, put on the full armor of God. This is Paul's way of saying, build some walls. Put on the armor so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And friends, I don't have time. I want you to take this home and study it. Ask God, what does it look like to wear the armor of God in my life so as to not let any influence of outside culture in? And he says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fiercely make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fiercely as I should. Listen, this message today has layers. Many layers as practical as your mental health, saying, I will not let this thought in. I'm not just gonna try to deal with it. Once it gets in, I'm not letting it in. La, 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 la. I can't hear you. You're not getting in. That's for you. Another layer. God is calling us to prayer. It says, be alert. And always keep on praying for the Lord's people. There are spiritual realities and dynamics that we can't see, that we don't know about. But God has called us as people to go to war in prayer. I'm giving you this at the end. There's a spiritual wall that you and I, us as a community, need to start building. And it comes up with prayer. Just because Jamie's got his walls built up in his life to preserve and protect him, it doesn't mean that we all do. And this place needs to be a place of refuge for those who do not know how to build walls in their own lives, that they can come and see a wall built around all of us. And this happens by prayer, that the culture in this room, in our homes, in our lives is the culture of heaven, and no culture that has any negative influence can come in this place. Thank you.
I want you to see through the narrative of Scripture how much this matters to God, that there's spiritual realities in your life, in this room, in this church, in this city that require walls to be built so that the culture of heaven can be preserved and protected so that you can walk in blessing, so that the city can walk in blessing. Build some walls, not just by your behavior, but with prayer. Wake up every day and say, this culture is God's culture. Devil, stay out. Holy Spirit, make me aware of any moment that he, you get access, devil. So Nehemiah, he accomplishes it. He mobilizes people. He galvanizes the city. He builds the wall. And it happens quickly and it happens miraculously. I just want to encourage you that when you start handing this over to the Lord, that walls are going to go up quick. He will train you in no time. You've been battling 30 years of your life to figure out how to think properly. Build a wall. It's going to happen quickly. But it says that Nehemiah, he leaves for a few years. He goes back to his post. And then he comes back after a few years. But things weren't the way he left them. And it says in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4, it says, Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, and he was closely associated with Tobiah. Remember Sanbal and Tobiah, the enemies of the rebuilding of the wall. They were upset that God had come to promote the welfare of his people. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers as well as the contributions for the priests. Oh, I need you to hear me. Some of us aren't just letting him in accidentally. Some of us were letting the enemy come in and set up shop. that just like this guy, the priest, did for Tobiah, you're saying, I like you. I like what you've done for my life. I'm comfortable with this way of thinking. I like the power that I feel when I'm angry. I like the control that I feel when I'm bitter. I like the sense of victimhood that I feel when I hold on to unforgiveness. There are some things that aren't getting in accidentally. You're actually partnering with them and you're creating a room in the temple of God for them to stay. It says that he was closely associated with Tobiah. He said, come live here. I know this one man who is a pastor actually and he had some demonic oppression when he was being harassed internally in his spirit every day by spirits demonic spirits we don't go here often I'm gonna go here today and a friend was walking with him through this and he did something called deliverance 
Literally, you go to Nehemiah, what he did was he went to the temple. Tobiah, the enemy of God, was staying in the temple. He literally just went there and said, you get out. You don't belong here. You're the enemy of God. You're the opposite of blessing. You're bringing death and curse. This pastor was dealing with a few spirits within him. And they're dealing with spirits one by one, labeling them, saying, get out, get out, get out. And they come to this last one that seemed a little bit deceptive. And all of a sudden, my friend got it spiritually, word of knowledge. It was the spirit of suicide. That internally, this pastor, unbeknownst to anybody around him, was fantasizing about suicide over and over and over and over again. And there was a moment where it was labeled and said, you feel this way about yourself, don't you? And he says, yes, I can't stop thinking about wanting to die. But I don't wanna let it go. Suicide has been a friend to me all of these years. Because when I get into pain and stress, the most comfort that I can feel is fantasizing about leaving this life. It's the only way I know how to cope when something hard comes. And so the thing that was the enemy of his life became his friend. And he said, I can't let you go because the only comfort I feel in my pain. And some of us, whether it's that or something else, have grown so familiar and comfortable with what your life looks like indulging these things that have come from your enemy. It's not just, you're not just being infiltrated. You're saying, here's a room, stay here because as much as I try this God thing, I got a little bit of doubt, but if you're over here, I'm gonna be okay. Today, I just wanna tell you by the power of the Holy Spirit, kick that thing out because it is not blessing, it is curse. I had, the Lord has something he wants to do. There are layers here, and I'm not even gonna explain. But I wanna say this, this is God's house. We are his people. Your family is God's family. Your life is God's temple. It is God's culture, it is God's blessing, and he wants you to walk in it. Everything in the name of Jesus that does not belong in our lives, in this church, in this city, must go in the name of Jesus. Bless you guys. Closed. 
we do here every single Sunday, what you do at home in your time with the Lord, when you're reading and praying, you're establishing the culture of the kingdom in you. Right now in this moment, we're rebuilding walls. And the enemy of your life is not happy about it. Jesus I want you to say it right now I'm in Jesus and I want you to say this Satan you have no jurisdiction here this is the culture of the king you don't belong today I'm building a wall and you don't belong this moment set up boundaries in our relationships with each other. Literally, practically today, we're setting up boundaries in our relationship with Satan. You don't belong here anymore. So in this metaphor, if you want to make a stand today, just like Nehemiah and say the walls must be rebuilt, you want to protect and preserve and cultivate the culture of the king in your heart and kick out anything that doesn't belong. I just want you to raise your hand. No eyes are open. That's it. Enough's enough. I don't want to deal with the problem once it gets in. I'm going to keep that thing from getting in. I have not been walking in the fullness of life and today I declare before heaven that I want the fullness of life. The little things matter. Bitterness, you gotta go. Whoever's dealing with bitterness, say you gotta go. 
Say it out loud. You got to go. Like if you're dealing with it, say, I got to go. You got to go. Anybody dealing with unforgiveness? Forgive. Anger, you got to go. Suicide, you got to go. I'm Jesus, you got to go.